join me once more in your copy of God's Word in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. We've been in Matthew several times over the course of this uh, series on Baptist distinctives. That was not on purpose. These are just uh, places of Scripture that speak most directly to some of the issues that we have been dealing with. Matthew 22, and we'll be in verses 15 through 22 this morning. Uh, We began several weeks ago with the first of those historic biblical foundations that make us Baptists that shape our life and faith and ministry together, that first conviction being a high view of God's Word, that this uh, library of scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit of God is authoritative and inerrant and unfailing in all that it teaches, most especially for those matters pertaining to salvation and godly living. Knowing that God's Word is what makes His church and what defines what His church is, we affirm the second week that the church of Jesus Christ and every local church should only be made up, its members anyway, uh, attenders excluded, but members anyway, of those who are professing believers in Jesus as the Christ. Knowing, third, that we have been given by Jesus, our great high priest, priestly access to God, to do ministry in the world, to take the presence of God in every sphere of influence in our lives. We affirm the priesthood of all believers. And then last week we saw that with that privilege of priestly access to God, that we have access to His wisdom, to His will, to Him guiding and directing us. And we have been given autonomy, the ability to govern ourselves as a local church. Now this week we conclude this series called Deep Roots, Biblical Foundations of Our Baptist Heritage, with the last uh, historic distinctive of what has shaped Baptist life and faith and ministry the last 400 years. Some have summarized this conviction as the separation between church and state, but really it is two convictions that kind of go hand in hand, one following from the other. The final distinctive of Baptist uh, heritage, theological heritage is this, is that of soul competency and religious liberty. Soul competency and religious liberty. And don't worry, we'll define those terms here in a moment so you can uh, have that more readily at hand. I know that at least the first term, soul competency, is probably not something that you speak about with your children over dinner week to week. So uh, I don't blame you. We don't in our house either. I want you for a moment, though, in your mind's eye to imagine what you would do if you lived in a nation where the government refused to allow you to worship as you felt that the Bible had instructed? What if the government required your pastor to have a state-issued license to preach? What if the government deemed every unauthorized prayer service, every worship gathering, a crime punishable by time in prison? This was the case for Baptists in the mid-1600s in England. John Bunyan, one such Baptist pastor, famous for having written The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan refused to receive licensure from the state church to preach. And John Bunyan refused to stop his illegal Baptist church services. And for all of his efforts, he spent the better part of 12 years, from 1660 to 1672, in prison for his conviction. He said, when told by civil magistrates that he could go free if only he would not preach, that he would rather remain in prison until moss grew on his eyelids than fail to do what God had commanded. Soul competency and religious liberty have flavored the Baptist expression of faith for the last 400 years or so. 
And it comes from this conviction, which is our main idea today, that our responsibility before God, our responsibility to answer for our faith or lack thereof, requires a free conscience to worship Him. Our responsibility to answer to God requires a free conscience to worship Him as conscience dictates. As we look at these two twin concepts of soul competency and religious liberty from God's Word today in Matthew 22, I want for us first to deal with, in our own hearts, our responsibility before God, that we must answer to Him. And second, to use godly wisdom to pursue the religious liberty of all persons as those who know that a free environment to worship is the best environment for the gospel to thrive. Will you stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word? Matthew twenty-two, fifteen to 22. Just by way of context, this event takes place during the last week of Jesus' life as, as He is quickly speeding toward the cross. His conflicts with Pharisees and others uh, increase. There's increased teaching from Jesus. And this is just one such event that last week of His life. We read Matthew twenty-two, fifteen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And it brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Soul competency and religious liberty, indicating that our responsibility before God requires a free conscience to worship Him. Now, I said we were going to define some terms, so let's do that briefly. First, soul competency, S-O-U-L, soul competency. What do we mean by that? This is the God-given right for every individual to access God. That's what we mean by soul competency. A God-given right for every individual to access God, to approach God. Genesis 1.26 affirms this right for us when we are told that God made man in His own image. And in Genesis 3, when before the fall, God walked with man in the garden, there was in Adam and Eve's created state access to God. Now, that soul competency, that ability, that God-given right to approach God is in some way made incompetent by the fall, by the disobedience of man into sin. Adam and Eve, eating from the fruit of the garden, became sinners. They broke, uh, or the fruit of the, the forbidden tree became sinners. They broke fellowship with God. They were later expelled from the garden. And in their sinful state, they were constantly and regularly given to sin, and such has been the case for all of us. And we see that pattern early in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. There when the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, offer sacrifices to God. Abel's is pleasing to God. Cain's is not pleasing to God. And Cain, in his jealous anger, is plotting in his mind how to kill his brother. 
And he is confronted by God in Genesis 4-7. God saying to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Nevertheless, we see that Cain cannot rule over it. Having a heart that is marred by sin, he is incompetent to resist sin. And this pattern is proven time and time again in the very worst and the very best of biblical characters all throughout the Old and New Testaments. The very worst of people, like Tubal Cain, you'll read about him in Genesis, I think, 9. He's awful. He's piled up the bodies of his enemies. But even the very best of people, like David, King David, is given to sin time and time again. Even though our soul competency is made in some way incompetent by our sinful nature, nevertheless, we are all still responsible to God for our sin. Ezekiel 18, verse 4, God says through his prophet, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, and the soul who sins shall die. Sons are not responsible for the sins of their fathers. Fathers are not held responsible by God for the sins of their sons. Each one bears his own sin before God. As Paul says in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, that includes you and me, all of us in this room. We're all responsible to God for our sin, but also we are responsible to God for our obedience to Him. In Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. God holds us responsible for obedience to His will, for responding to Jesus in faith. And we bear that responsibility on our own. No one can bear that responsibility for us. Fathers, you cannot bear that responsibility for your children, nor the other way around, nor any of us as Christians for others. But all of us will stand before God individually to give an answer for what we have done in this life and with Jesus. Soul competency, the God-given right to access to, of access to God. Now, that conviction that we all have access to God leads to the second half of what we're talking about this morning, religious liberty. If every soul has access to God, then the best environment for people to approach Him is one that that gives freedom for them to do so as their conscience requires. We define religious liberty this way, that it is the ability to practice our faith or for anyone to practice their faith without the intrusion, without the interference, without the coercion of civil government. That is to say, the the best environment for the gospel to flourish is a religiously free environment where no one is coerced to believe or to practice faith any one certain way. So now we want to turn back to Matthew 22 and this event in the last week of Jesus' life to see how he deals with these issues of soul competency and religious liberty. And he doesn't deal with them explicitly in those terms you probably noticed as we read the text, but he deals with these concepts by, by asking and answering a question that perhaps the Pharisees and Herodians that are approaching him are not seeking to ask and answer, but Jesus asks and leads us to ask and answer, who has authority over what? Who has authority over what? As we come to understand this passage, we see two parties approaching Jesus. On the one hand, the Pharisees, who were those Jewish legal experts. They were experts in the law of God and experts in the interpretation and application of that law in daily life. They hated Jesus. 
On the other hand, you have the Herodians, who were ethnically Jewish, but who politically had aligned themselves with, uh, with Rome and the Roman emperor and the Roman government that had come to take over that area of Israel and Palestine. These two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, come to Jesus this last week of his life in order to hang him on the horns of a dilemma. They ask him, essentially, whose side are you on? Now they begin, of course, this is not the question, they ask him directly, but they begin approaching Jesus by buttering him up. You hear their words, teacher, we know you're truthful. You don't ever say anything that isn't true. And you don't care about anybody. You're no respecter of, of persons. You don't treat anyone differently because of how they appear on the outside. You're always, you're always true. You, you, you're, you're never deceitful. So tell us, teacher. And here's where they try to hang him. Is it lawful or not? to pay the tax. Is it lawful or not to pay the poll tax to Caesar? Now, it's helpful to remember that at this time, what was then the area of Palestine, what was previously the nation of Israel, is, is territory that is occupied and protected by Rome in Jesus' day. It's part of the Roman Empire. The poll tax that they're asking about was a tax that went to the emperor's coffer in order to support the continuation of Roman protection of various trade routes that went through uh, the, the Roman Empire and as well other conquered territories that Rome had come to take over. The Pharisees, in asking this question, hope that Jesus will agree with the poll tax. Yeah, pay Caesar his taxes. And in so doing, Jesus would align himself with the Roman government. He would uh, discredit himself among his followers who were not fans of, of the Roman imposition of taxes and other things in their land. And Jesus would be discredited. He'd fall off of the, off of the map of, of uh, you know, public discourse and that sort of thing. And, uh, and Jesus would just fall by the wayside and things would go back to normal. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us why the Herodians are there. Perhaps they're part of the Pharisees' plot. The Herodians weren't particularly big fans of Jesus either. It might be that if Jesus were to affirm or, or rather deny giving taxes to Caesar, that he would, in aligning himself with the Pharisees and that, that movement of people to get Rome out of Israel, that he would become an enemy to Herod and then he would be Herod's problem. Either way, the Pharisees and the Herodians who are opposed to Jesus, whatever Jesus says in response to their question, it's a win-win situation for them. Either Jesus falls off the map, he's discredited, or he becomes an enemy of Herod and an enemy of Rome, and they'll take care of the problem. Tell us, teacher, is it lawful or not to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus, knowing their hearts, recognizing the malicious intent of their question, calls it for what it is. You hypocrites, why do you test me? Give me a coin for the poll tax. The coin that they gave him is a denarius. A denarius was a day laborer's wage. When you think about it, it's really not a significant tax. One day's wages for, to pay taxes to Caesar for the protection of, uh, 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 of your community, your territory occupied by Rome so that you could do trade freely and, and, uh, and know that you'd be protected from maybe uh, marauders from outside. Not a significant tax, none, all, all the same. It was politically charged. The denarius that Jesus would have been given on the, one hand, on the one side would have been imprinted with an image of Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor at the time. And on the other side of the coin would have been a picture of the Roman goddess Pax. She's the Roman goddess of peace. Jesus holding this 
coin, presumably, in front of the Pharisees and the Herodians and his disciples that are there, asks the question, whose name or whose, whose image and whose inscription, whose name are on this coin? And they reply, the obvious answer, Caesar's. And in his response, Jesus deals with the question of who has authority over what. His first, the first half of his response deals with Caesar's authority. Jesus replies to their answer that Caesar's image on there. He says, then render, that is, give back, pay back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And in so saying, affirms that Caesar does, in fact, have lawful authority over these Palestinian Jews, even authority to collect taxes from them. Now, Caesar, in those days, not just Tiberius Caesar, but every emperor of Rome, thought himself to be a god, to be among the company of the the Roman catalog of gods. Irrespective of what Caesar thought about himself, Scripture is clear that his authority is not divine, his authority is not limitless. Rather, his authority is borrowed and his authority is bound. It comes from someone else and it only goes so far. Paul says in Romans 13, 1 to 7, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. God brings rulers to their place, and he lends them authority to use. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Paul says in Romans 13, 7, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Caesar has authority, but his authority is borrowed. It's borrowed from God. His authority is bound. It only goes so far. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, he says to a church under persecution or growing persecution under the Roman emperor Nero, he says, be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institu- to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, that by living in a peaceful way, you would shut up those who would seek to paint you as rebels in the empire. Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We see in these two passages, in addition to what Jesus has said in Matthew 22, that the task for civil authorities, as God's word says, is ultimately to protect the common good and to ensure a kind of environment that is favorable to human flourishing. God gives authority to governments to do that. And insofar as governments do this, they are to receive our honor and our respect. And if they ask for it, our taxes as well. Now, this principle of Caesar's authority, which is both borrowed and bound, but does have application, this principle applies to dictatorial overlords like emperors in Rome and to democratically elected representatives alike. 
If it was not unlawful, if God could command the church to give honor, taxes, and respect to authoritarian emperors persecuting the church, then certainly it is lawful and right for us to give the same to the IRS. That went over better in the first service. Caesar has authority, authority even to collect taxes as, as he and other civil magistrates see to the common good of the people. His authority, though, is borrowed and it is bound. Now, it would have been nice for those who, were listen, who, who had asked Jesus this question if he would have just stopped after the first half of the question. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Boom, automatically the Pharisees are like, okay, great. You're just like the Herodians. You're in league with Rome. Uh, and so now you're discredited in front of everybody. But Jesus, good as he is, never to stop short of convicting everyone, answers the second half of a question they weren't answering. Ask him. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. In the first half of his, question, of his answer, he deals with Caesar's authority. In the second half of his answer, he deals now with God's authority. What belongs to God? What does God have authority over? That's the question, isn't it? What does God have a rightful claim to? If Caesar has rightful claim to coins with his image printed on them, what does God have a claim to? The answer, friends, is everything. God has a claim to everything. God's authority is not borrowed or bound. His authority is absolute, and His authority is all-encompassing. Genesis 1 tells us clearly that God is the creator of all things, and as creator, He is the owner of all things. His authority is absolute. There is no sphere of our life over which He does not reign. All power, all authority originates in God, and He holds all ultimate authority. Kings and queens, presidents and dictators will all answer to God. His authority is absolute. His authority is also all-encompassing. Now, where Caesar and civil authorities may have a claim to your stuff, their authority stops there. God's authority is over your stuff. Don't miss that. God has given to us everything that we have out of his provision. He's Lord over your stuff. It belongs to him too. But more so, God's authority extends beyond your stuff to your soul, to your heart, to what it is that makes you who you are. God has authority over that as well. Made in his image, we bear his image, his likeness. We bear his name, his inscription. We are made by God to be like living mirrors that shine back to him and out to the world. All of the glories of his infinitely holy nature and character. And we are made to delight in doing so. So when Jesus says, render to God what is God's, he is saying essentially, Caesar may have a limited claim on your stuff. Give it to him. Whatever. No big deal. The real question is, who are you giving your soul to? The reality of our sinful natures is that we have all given our soul to other things or to other people or attempted even to keep it for ourselves, that, that I would be the sole authority, absolute and all-encompassing over my life. But because God has, only God has that authority over us, every act of rebellion against Him separates us further and further from fellowship with Him, 
Sin leads to not just disfellowship from God, but death. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in flesh, came to point us to this reality that our sin is deadly. Our, our futile grasp at authority over our lives only leads us further away from God. Jesus comes not only to point us to this reality, but also to offer us hope. Hope for restoration. Hope for reconciliation with a God that we have infinitely offended by our treason to Him. And this hope He offers by dying for our sins. Taking the full penalty for our rebellion, our treachery, our treason against God. And then by His own might being raised from the dead. So that simply by turning from sin and selfishness, repenting and trusting in Jesus as Lord, we would be restored with God, reconciled to God, made right with Him so that we could return to Him what is rightfully His, our soul, in a way that leads to our joy and to our life and our delight in so doing. Dear friend, you may not be a Christian here today, but I am telling you that this hope that Jesus gives by dying on the cross for sins and being raised from the dead, calling all to trust in Him, is hope that He extends to you. If you don't know Jesus this way, if you've not been made right with God this way, know that you are not restored to relationship with God. You're not justified to God by simply being a good person. No amount of good deeds can overcome the infinitely deleterious effects of your sin. But Jesus' perfect, sinless death in your place can. Trust Him. Receive Him as Lord. Get off the throne of your own heart and Place Christ in his rightful place there and see if you are not filled with delight and joy in giving back to God what he has made you to give to him and for that purpose. Who has authority over what? Caesar has some authority. His authority is borrowed and it's bound. God has authority that is absolute and all-encompassing. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 22. So what does all of this have to do? What does all of this mean for soul competency and religious liberty, the two concepts that we're dealing with this morning? Well, God's ultimate authority, we see, is over your soul. It's over your conscience. It's over what makes you who you are as an individual made in God's image. And we will all stand before God to give account for what we have done in response to that authority. Because the soul is under God's sphere of authority and under His authority only. And because He desires our willing faith, there is no human being who can compel us to believe, nor should they compel us to believe or attempt to compel us to believe anything that is contrary to conscience. If I could say that differently, since there is no such thing as a coerced Christian, as a forced Christian, There should be clear and sweeping protection for the conscience of every person to worship as conscience leads them, Christian or otherwise. One Baptist pastor many hundred years ago said, forced worship is not worship. Forced worship stinks in the nostrils of God. Roger Williams, who's the founder of Providence, Rhode Island, And a Baptist pastor wrote in 1644, he said, It is the will and command of God that a permission of the most paganish, Jewish, Turkish, by that he means Muslim, 
or anti-Christian consciences and worships be granted to all men in all nations and countries. And they are only to be fought against with that sword which is only able to conquer the sword of God's Spirit, the Word of God. Roger Williams, this Baptist pastor, said, Religious liberty is not just for people who think like we do. It is for everyone. Baptist, Muslim, Jewish, pagan, atheist alike. That there should be no person to compel anyone to believe anything. And the only weapon to be brought against those who don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. The sword of the Spirit, which is living and active, able to divide between bone and sinew, between soul and spirit, to cut right to the heart of the individual. Colonial Virginia Baptist John Leland, who was a friend of James Madison and also a uh, competitor to James Madison for a Senate seat, John Leland, this Baptist minister, was running for the Senate against James Madison because he saw in the Constitution, as initially uh, written and ratified, not protecting religious liberty. And so he was running for a seat on the Senate to ensure that Baptists would be able to meet as Baptists, even though most of the other churches were Congregationalists, without fear of uh, reprisal, without fear of imprisonment from those in the Congregationalist church. He eventually met with James Madison, and he told James Madison, hey, listen, if you will ensure the right to religious liberty, the right to, to worship freely in our nation, then I'll, I'll pull out of the race, and, and you can have the Senate seat. I just, want, I just want to make sure we can worship the way that we feel that God's Word has led us to. James Madison assured him that he'd be able to. The First Amendment of the Bill of Rights to the con- uh, Constitution includes the right to, free, uh, to, to, uh, to assemble freely in matters of religion. So John Leland's work in influencing the Bill of Rights was successful. But John Leland later in life said this, that whenever men fly to the law, or fly to the sword to protect their system of religion and force it upon others... It is evident that they have something in their system that will not bear the light and will not stand upon the basis of truth. Dear friend, this is true for Christianity as well. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Friends, it is the gospel that is our power to bring people to redemption We should not turn to any other power, any other authority than that of the Word of God to lead people to faith in Jesus. We should never turn to the government to ask for their help in making sure that we are a Christian nation by coercion. So said every person who's a citizen of the United States must be a Christian, and if you're not, it's off to the stocks. It's off to the hangman's gallow you go. Any gospel that cannot bear up under the weight of scrutiny on its own terms its own power that God imbues it with is not a gospel with any power at all. Any gospel that needs the help of the government is no gospel that has power to save. Friends, there should be no attempt by government. And this has been our Baptist conviction for over 400 years. No attempt by government to impose faith upon the people, nor any attempt by the faithful of any religion to use the law or to use the sword to impose their faith upon unbelievers. 
Hear me. If we would oppose Buddhists requiring others to be Buddhists or Muslims requiring others to be Muslims or Hindus requiring others to be Hindu under penalty of death, then we should also oppose Baptists requiring other people to be Baptists. Soul competency, that God-given right to access God, necessitates religious liberty, a free society in which people can worship God as their conscience dictates is the only environment where the gospel can really flourish, where the gospel can really demonstrate its power to bring people to salvation. This is our conviction. But then thinking practically for a moment, what are we to do as Christians when civil authorities rule or legislate in an ungodly way? What do we do as Christians When those who have earthly authority over us would seek to use it in ungodly manners, in ways that perhaps are contrary to God's word and his will for not just our lives, but for human flourishing. We will respond first this way, by trusting God's absolute authority. Trust God's absolute authority. Remember, dear friends, that even if the government acts in a way that leads to the conscription of our faith, that God is still in ultimate control. Even if government leads in a way to try to force you to believe something that is not true, that is contrary to Scripture, that God is still in control. He has raised up those leaders and put them in a position for a purpose, and He is going to use them uh, according to His will, despite their best attempts otherwise. God is bigger than the civil magistrates, and He is certainly more powerful And one day, all men and women will stand before him as he judges perfectly and finally. Trust God's absolute authority. Then, in the face of maybe ungodly laws, ungodly legislation, we need to determine whether or not conscience is really being compelled. By that I mean, is the government requiring you to believe or to think or to worship a particular way otherwise you're, uh, uh, otherwise you're, you're uh, liable to go to prison or to be punished in some way for not doing so. Most of the time, let me say, conscience is not being compelled. In the United States, 99.9% of the time when laws come out that, that are ungodly and maybe even unbiblical, they're still not compelling conscience. But when this takes place, I encourage you to do these things. First of all, recognize that the ruling from the government, which is ungodly, which is unbiblical, may be biblically unethical, may be biblically unwise, and may even be encouraging of sin among the broader uh, scope of the citizenry. The good news is that most of the time, conscientious freedom is still intact. And so the worst that we'll suffer in a situation like that is marginalization. The worst that we'll suffer is being seen as weird by people who aren't Christians. And let me just say, if the society that you live in thinks that you're weird because you follow Jesus, well, then you're in good company, along with the millions, even billions of other Christians who have lived over the last 2,000 years and been thought of as weird in believing in a risen Savior, weird in believing that uh, all life is worthy of dignity and respect from the moment of conception until natural death, weird for thinking that God made men male and female and that for His glory and for our good. Take joy in not being imprisoned for your weirdness. 
Then second, hold out with boldness and charity, with boldness and grace, the hope and the truth of the gospel. Even when governments make laws that are ungodly, maybe even promoting of sin, we still have the obligation by God to hold out the hope of the gospel with boldness to people who think that we're weird, to people who think that we're strange, to people who would rather have nothing to do with us, and with charity, with grace for those that we're speaking it to. Third, as you hold out the gospel, the hope and the truth of the gospel, then seek to minister with, chari- with Christian integrity and to minister with grace to those who may be unwitting victims of that legislation. In the present day that we live in, there's more and more uh, legislation that is making available to young children the ability to deny the the gender that God had made them in his image to to bear and so receive uh, gender reassignment surgery and treatments even before puberty. I would say that this is a a travesty upon the image of God in these individuals. It is not legislation that leads to ultimately human flourishing. It's legislation that leads to harm. I think it's sinful. But what we need to do in situations like this is recognize the long line of unwitting victims that legislation like this will leave in its wake. As maybe children, as human beings, are influenced by secular perspectives, secular thoughts about about human sexuality and what it means to be in the body that you're in and seek to change the appearance of that body and later on years down the road recognize that was a bad decision. I have done irreparable damage to my body. We need to be ready to come alongside those with grace to say there's hope for you in Jesus. To women who have considered having an abortion, to come alongside them and say there's hope for you in Jesus. And even as we oppose these things and give grace to those who are unwitting victims of these things, we need to ensure as Christians that any public demonstration, any protest that we would engage in is peaceful, that it is gentle, that it is prayerful, friends, and that it is consistent with God's Word and compassionate toward all. Bombing abortion clinics is not an appropriate response to the travesty of abortion in our nation. Holding out with love and grace and, 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 and extending open arms to those who are considering having an abortion, saying, There's hope for you in Jesus. There's a community of Christians who would love to care for you and for your child if you would let us. There is hope for you. And you know what? Even if you go through with this, even if you have the abortion, there's still hope and forgiveness and life in Jesus. Recognize. When legislation is ungodly, recognize that it is, but thank God that the worst you'll suffer if conscience is not being compelled is weirdness. Hold out with boldness and charity the hope and the truth of the gospel. Minister with integrity to those who are unwitting victims, being prayerful, being cheerful, being gentle, being consistent and compassionate in all things. And then, in these situations where conscience is not being compelled, still honor the government. Still respect governors. Still appeal to better judgment with winsome and compelling arguments. Don't take to Twitter to vent your rage about this or that social evil. We as Christians should have far better arguments than, you're a jerk. You're wrong. 
God's Word has given us a basis to, to develop compelling arguments for, uh, for all sorts of matters pertaining to human flourishing according to God's design. Let's go there and let's compel from God's Word, from the sword of the Spirit, with arguments that can win hearts and minds. And dear friends, if you can, in these situations, as we have the unique opportunity to do in the United States of America, vote. Vote. If you can have your voice counted, if you can have your opinion registered publicly against this or for this or that legislation, do it. Vote. So if your conscience is not compelled, if the government is not forcing you to believe or to do this thing under threat of imprisonment, respond those ways. But what do you do when conscience is compelled? Well, let me say again, 99.99999% of the time in the United States of America, this is not taking place. Conscience is not being compelled by and large through governmental means. But if it is, if the government says you must believe this, you must worship this way, you cannot worship like this otherwise or you cannot believe this thing, otherwise we're going to put you into prison. Then what do you do? You do everything that I just told you. And you stand ready to incur the consequences for faithfulness to Christ. In the days of the early church, Peter and John, the apostles, were healing people and preaching the gospel hand in hand, side by side. And they were arrested by the ruling authorities in Jerusalem. And the ruling authorities could care less whether or not Peter and John stopped healing. They didn't care about that. The problem was not that Peter and John were healing people. The problem was that Peter and John were saying, Jesus is Lord. They were preaching Christ and Him crucified. And they told Peter and John, under threat of beating and imprisonment, stop preaching Jesus. And in Acts 4, verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. If you're going to beat us, beat us. If you're going to throw us in prison, throw us in prison. But we can't stop talking about the hope that there is in Jesus. Do what you want. We're weird. We get it. We disagree with you. But our allegiance is to God first. So, give us your worst. Christ is still king. Finally, and I'll leave us with this, when governments or leaders may rule or legislate in an ungodly way, whether they are compelling conscience or not compelling conscience, we must commit to living out locally, living in our own lives, what we admire in the persecuted church globally. Live out personally what you admire about the persecuted church globally. How often are we reminded of our brothers and sisters in religiously restricted nations around the world and the great sacrifices that they make day by day, hour by hour for the gospel, being rejected by non-believing family members, meeting in secret under the cover of night, being arrested, being beaten, facing execution for their faith, and all this they do with stalwart and steadfast focus on Jesus incurring severe consequences without responding in violence for the truth of the gospel. We honor and admire our brothers and sisters in Christ for their peaceful, heroic, faithful responses to governments that would seek to compel their conscience. 
doing all this, dear friends, would it not be hypocritical and the height of hypocrisy for us to publicly esteem their heroism in the face of religious oppression and then turn and in our own nation act with faithless cowardice and violence when we are oppressed? We need to live out personally what we admire so much about our persecuted brothers and sisters globally. Faithfulness to Jesus, irrespective of the consequences. John Bunyan, that Baptist pastor, spent 12 years in prison in England in the late 1600s during the time of his imprisonment when he could have been let free if only he would stop preaching. Said that the church in the fire of persecution is like Esther in the perfuming chamber, being made fit for the presence of a king. The church in the fire of persecution is like Esther in the perfuming chamber, being made fit for the presence of the king. Dear friend, let us not forget that God sanctifies his church, that Jesus sanctifies his sheep through suffering, through hardship, through things that are difficult. And if in this world we are committed to preaching Christ and Him crucified, we can expect to be met with difficulty. Now praise God for the vast majority of us in the, in the global West, we are not met with persecution for our faith. We're weird, but we're not really persecuted. Let us then embrace the smallness of difficulty that we have for being weird for loving Jesus as God's sanctifying work in us and be ready to live out with all the same conviction that same gospel that Jesus Christ died for sinners when even governments may try to force us to believe otherwise. And let us know and be encouraged that in that process of being sanctified through suffering, we are being prepared to meet our King face to face. Our responsibility before God to answer for our faith and our obedience requires a free conscience to worship Him. This has been part of our Baptist heritage for over 400 years. Let us be committed to living it out with faith in Christ and in the power of the gospel for 400 years more or until Christ returns. Let's pray together.